privacy is something where we have less of it today. And a lot of people are asking, you know, are we headed towards you know, a world where every single thing we do can be monitored by somebody. And is that a world we want to live in? Is that a problem? Should we have government controls? I mean, how should we handle that? So the lack of privacy or privacy or the lack of privacy can be looked at in positive or negative ways. As as the book, The Circle or the movie, The Circle showed, right? which is the less privacy that we give you, the more we can keep you safe. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. So you teamed up with Kasparov, Gary Kasparov, the renowned chess champion, and then were involved with the Apple Newton. This sounds like a really interesting story to start with. Yeah. Many years ago, but yeah, late 80s, uh, I um, got the idea that I wanted to try to do business with the Soviets in technology because I wanted to do something international. And uh, for various reasons that made sense to me at the time, I thought, well, why don't I go over and try to do business in the Soviet Union? And uh, just, I guess, by luck and you know, working hard at it, I, I ended up being able to build a company where I owned half and the Soviet government owned half. And uh, we were. Uh, importing Soviet software and Soviet kind of uh, technology to the West. And so one of the partners on the Soviet side of the Russian side was Gary Kasparov. And so uh, one of the first big licenses that we did was handwritten text recognition on the Apple Newton. And so they paid us a million dollars for the license um, for that technology. And uh, so that was, A, it was a really unusual transaction to be able to license Soviet technology to an American company. And then, of course, that device, uh, Newton, was way ahead of its time. And this was right smack in, well, not smack in, but this was right in the Cold War. What was the environment like then? You know, it's funny, a guy just wrote a book on it. And so he did a lot of interviews with me and I don't think about that time that much. And so it made me think about it all. But, you know, when I first started going over there in 88 or so, I mean, it, it was the Soviet Union. I mean, there was nothing Western there at all. And uh, so it was an interesting place to be because it was, you know, nothing like the West. And it also, you know, was pretty safe because it was, uh, you know, it was um, a police state. And so uh, I watched from 88 to 92 when the revolution happened. I mean, I got a firsthand look at kind of the breakdown of socialism there and, you know, the Communist Party and, you know, ultimately the revolution and then it becoming westernized. And uh, it's really weird now, having spent a lot of time there when it was the Soviet Union, to now go back with it as being Russia and to see how different it is. How's it changed your your business career, your worldview? Well, those are two different things. I mean, from a career standpoint, uh, it it probably was the first really crazy thing I ever went and did. and, And I was able to do it. And so, 
it gave me a certain amount of confidence that you can go be disruptive or you can go do things that other people will tell you are crazy uh, and actually make them work. And so, uh, you know, that that has had an influence on my career that I don't, I suppose I don't put a lot of barriers up now about what's possible or what's not possible. Uh, my worldview, you know, even though I went to school and, you know, it was taught about communism or taught about Russia or taught about things like that, uh, having actually worked there and seen firsthand that, that system, that economic system and political system versus the West. It was uh, fascinating to see. And um, I don't know, it, it just broadened my perspective quite a bit about people and, and nation states and uh, political systems and economic models. And I mean, it, it just allows you to see these things firsthand in a way that they're not abstract like they are when you're taught in the classroom. I mean, that's huge going forward. So this podcast is called The Disruptors. We get people on who are disrupting something big. And I think you've done that a couple of times. So tell me the CD revolution. You, you seem to have been very intimately involved in shaped that. Tell me a little bit more about that background story, and then we'll go a little bit farther on disruptions. Uh, I was in an interesting situation. I got to be friends with H.R. Holdeman, who had been Nixon's chief of staff and who was one of the main Watergate figures. And he and I had gotten to be friends. And one day he said, I really would like to write my diaries. Uh, but I have you know, 3,000 pages of text. I have videos and movies and you know, nobody's seen any of this. So, you know, how would we take this and create, you know, a document that's a historical record that would, you know, might also be a bestseller? And so, at, you know, at that time, CDs were fairly new, but I suggested, you know, well, why don't we try to, to do a book and put a CD-ROM in the back of the book and have the CD contain the pictures and the, and the movies and, you know, have it, you know, somewhat referenced from the book? Uh, and that way somebody could read the text of things, but that there would be links or there would be, you know, ways that they could actually go see some of the media that you have. So we went and we basically pitched that project to Sony and Putnam and Putnam took on the book. Sony took on the CD-ROM. And so we rolled out one of the, not, not the first, but one of the early books that was kind of a combination of a book and a CD-ROM. And then that became pretty, pretty standard pretty quickly, at least in the, in the uh, education space. Right. Yeah. It, it later became something that you know, was much more common if you needed to provide both text, but also visuals. And then you decide to bring CD music to the internet, webcast.com? Uh, so that was more video to the internet. So uh, back at the time that broadcast.com, Mark Cuban's company was you know, developing uh, the ability to, to push video on the internet, uh, we, we decided to create some technology as well that would allow us to basically recreate television on the internet to push television shows. Uh, but live event. And so we really started doing a lot of work with, you know, how do you push the first two days of a golf tournament, right, that weren't on TV at that time? How do you push that to the internet? Or how do you push a pay-per-view event to the internet like uh, the WWE, you know, WrestleMania? And so we started, you know, pioneering, building all of the equipment and writing all the software that would allow somebody to produce a live event on the internet, which is a little different than what Mark, Mark Cuban was doing at broadcast.com. So you built the company and uh, it was pretty early. What, what year was this? Which one? The webcast.com. Oh, uh, we started, really, we started webcast.com in the late 90s. 
So this was this was pre YouTube then definitely. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was before YouTube. And you ended up selling. You had a great exit, but do you regret selling? Uh, sure. It's funny we talk about it. You know, those of us that built it, that you know, we were a bit ahead of our time, and you know, maybe we sold out too early, and so we talk about that. You know, I mean, we we, we did well with it. Um, so I mean, you, you have to. I, I mean, I was always grateful that we had a good run because we spent five years building it, and then we exited. But but yeah, sure. You look at it now, and you know, we go, wow. You know, we had a lot of interesting technology that if we would have just held on to it and kept doing what we were doing, you know, we the market probably would have caught up with us a lot more. And the technology caught up with us a lot more. You know, who knows where we could have been. So we talk about that, but nobody ruminates on it too hard. That's good. Uh, There's no real point to regret it. Do you, how do you get into these type of positions where you seemingly disrupt or or help disrupt certain industries, change new trends? Why you? It's a good question. You know, I I think it's a combination of things. I think I developed the skill of being able to look into the future fairly accurately, which is a bit of a learned skill, I think, you know, where you really study dynamics and trends and you get good at trend extrapolation. And so I think I got good at being able to predict where technology would go. And then at times and in different industries, because it's not like I was ever stuck in any one industry, I, I would look at the industry and say, hey, there's something missing. There's a hole in the industry and technology is going to fill that hole. And so, you know, let's go do that before everybody else. So, I mean, the reason I went to the Soviet Union was that was forbidden territory, so to speak. But I had a feeling that it would open up to the West. And so I thought, well, let's go there before everybody else goes there. Then let's be there, position that when it opens up, you know, we'll have relationships and a company that's valuable. And so almost everything I've done, you can kind of look at that where like I knew video on the internet was going to be big. So it's just a matter of trying to figure out, all right, well, how do you stake some territory uh, with video on the internet? And so, I, I mean, I think to this day, I still look at, okay, what, what do I see coming next? How is it going to influence industries? You know, how do I help people or how do I take advantage of that? You could have been that douchebag on Silicon Valley. I put, I put TV on the internet. That could have been yeah. your face. You would be famous, man. Oh, Lord. Yeah. What uh what trends are you are you most interested or excited about today? Uh probably the two I'm most interested in and I'm working in most are security, so cybersecurity, but just security, integrated security. So how do you how do you integrate physical, electronic, and cybersecurity into an integrated security model? So I'm very interested in that. And then uh, machine intelligence. So the whole machine intelligence stack of robots, RPA, AI, cognitive computing, machine learning, sensors, right? The whole, what we call, what I would call the machine intelligence stack. So th- those are the two areas that uh, take up most of my brain power today. There's a lot of focus on the AI side, but there's not as much on the cybersecurity. Do you think there should be more? Should they be at parity? What would what would you think about? I guess the reason I'm interested in cybersecurity is it's it's getting worse. I mean, the the battle is getting worse, and you know the good guys are losing, and uh, it's costing you know shifting billions and billions of dollars to people who I don't think deserve it or who aren't getting it in the honest way. And uh, it's a field that most people it's behind the black curtain. They don't understand it. Uh, it's dangerous. Um, and so, and I don't see it getting any better. I mean, when I play out the Internet of Things world or I play out uh, artificial intelligence, AI, and where all of that goes, I see nothing but it's going to get worse. You know, our legislators are not enacting laws that are helpful. You know, for instance, we don't have a digital RICO law, right? So we got rid of the mafia or we took down the mafia quite a bit because eventually we put the RICO laws in place. 
you know, and I don't see legislators today going, hey, let's come up with a digital RICO law. So, I mean, Can you expand on the RICO laws? Well, they were racketeering laws that basically said if you're a member of, a, of, of the mob, right? If you're a member of a group, the Cleveland mob, and one of your compatriots is convicted of murder, right, or brought up on murder charges, then, you know, we, we can bring you all up on racketeering charges. So we don't have to have necessarily specific proof that you did something. All we have to do is have proof that you're in the same group. And if you're in the same group, right, we can bring you up on racketeering charges. So we put specific laws in place um, that made it easier for law enforcement to break up the mafia. And and they worked very well. So what we have not done is really put specific laws in place to try to protect against cybercrime. And you know, I, that, I'm just giving you one angle, right? I'm just concerned that and we don't have enough people fighting a good fight to try to protect people and protect companies. And so that's why I'm interested in that field. Is it because consumers are clueless and have no idea and they're willing to trade their data for a faster Facebook sign-on? Sometimes. I mean, sometimes or they stick their cards in skimmers or, you know, they fall for vishing schemes or phishing schemes. You know, yeah, I mean, some of it is that. Some of it is that they don't pay the consequences. You know, I mean, they get their information stolen, but they don't suffer the consequences. Somebody else has to pay for the fraud, uh, which is usually some you know poor vendor or poor you know e-commerce transactor, and so uh, or retailer, right? So I you know I think that's part of the problem. But you know, even at a company level, you know, you have executives who have no idea what this battle is really like, and they trust their IT team or they trust people to protect them. And, you know, as Equifax showed and many others have showed, if you just sit around and trust your IT people without having any knowledge of this battle, you know, bad things happen to you. Especially when your IT people aren't even IT people. That uh, yeah. causes major problems. What what part of cybersecurity specifically are you most worried about? Is there is it IoT? Is it is it phones? Is it driverless cars? Is it something else? Everything? Mm, the human firewall is what makes me the most nervous. That it's so easy to socially engineer people. You know, that as the criminals build AI driven spear phishing engines, that you just have too many people that can't identify a spear phishing attack. And so the human firewall is what is the weakest part of security. And so that one probably interests me the most. But I'm very interested in how AI impacts the security space on both sides. I mean, how will the criminals, how are they using it? And how are the security experts using it? Is AI net positive or net negative for cybersecurity? It's net negative because the bad guys are faster, right? I mean, that's the problem that we have with crime, with digital crime, is the criminals have less barriers to moving with new technology. So if I were to say it this way to you, uh, if if a security guy, uh, one of our clients, a security guy goes to the CEO and says, hey, I need $100,000 for an AI-driven network protection system, all right? The the CEO goes, oh my gosh, $100,000. Uh, you know, we don't have that in the budget. You know, maybe you should put it in the budget for next year. We'll see if we can do it. And, uh, you know, so he gets lots of resistance. So on the criminal side, uh, a really smart criminal engineer goes to the godfather and says, hey, I need $100,000 to build a better AI spear phishing engine. And if I build it, we're going to be able to get you know, millions of dollars more in extortion fees from people. And the godfather looks at him and says, all right, you can have your $100,000. Here's a suitcase. And by the way, if you don't have that built by you know, December 15th, we're going to kill you. Right? So like the dynamics are completely different. I mean, you have a dynamic on one side where, you know, on the good guy side, people are more than happy to delay spending money, you know, wait, wait, to, wait to get better weapons till later. Whereas on the criminal side, they're like, let's go. I mean, you know, let's build it. Here's the money and you better get it done. So it's a net negative because 
even if the even if the capabilities are equal, the there's less friction if you're a criminal to using the technology. You don't adhere to any rules. You don't have policies. You don't have budgets. You don't have bureaucracy. So yeah, it's much easier to play offense than defense. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? What would you change to try to improve or fix the situation? I would wave it over boards of directors and executive teams, and I would teach them what the game's like and what it takes to manage risk. And if you did that, you would improve the world huge. Is government regulation the only answer? Essentially, if you get hacked, you pay massive fines for it? It's, it is an answer. I mean, it's not a bad answer. It's an answer is you make the penalties higher. You know, I mean, anytime you make the penalties higher for something, people pay more attention to it. So let's take an example at the personal level. Right now, if your credit card data gets stolen because you shop on a stupid e-commerce site in China or you stuck your your card in a skimmer. When your data is stolen, you get a call from the from the credit card company and they say, hey, somebody's charged $3,000 on your account. And you say, hey, that wasn't me. And they go, okay, no problem. We'll take it off. There's zero consequences for you. There's zero motivation, by the way, for you to be smarter now You know, with what you do. Now, let's say we give you a 20% copay. And the government says, from now on, if your credit card gets stolen and gets used, you pay 20% of it. Okay, now you'd have to pay 600 bucks or whatever the fee is, copay, because somebody stole your data or your credit card information. So do you think you'd be more careful? Does that ultimately just become a tax on old people though? It's a good point. You know, I would not even just say old. I mean, it might be a tax on the ignorant, right? So I mean, it's just a tax on the ignorant, whether they're young or old. And yes, it would be. You know, However, it, again, it's a solution. Is if you provide consequences, people pay more attention to fixing the problem. We need something to fix the problem because the problem is getting worse every every day, every year. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So did God create the internet? I'm curious about the book, the title, the theme. What happened here? Uh, for years, I wanted to write a book about uh, is technology ultimately going to help or hurt the human race? And so I spent three years writing it and the title is kind of metaphorical to, you know, is is technology going to help or hurt the human race? And so the book's a mixture of technology, ideas and concepts, philosophy, spirituality. It's an odd mix. So, you know, you, you can look at technology in terms of good and bad, just like you can't guns or fire and say, okay, well, what's helpful about this and what's harmful about this? And that's what I tried to do in the book is through a lot of different lenses, uh, look at where are things, are they good for us, are they bad for us? And then I went into the future and said, okay, let's look as time goes on, you know, what's going to happen with technology and will it be healthy or unhealthy for us? Let's break down a couple of those technologies and trends. What was positive, what wasn't, and then what about towards the future? Mm, Privacy. So privacy can be broken down into three different kinds of privacy. Body privacy, like I don't want somebody to see me naked. Data privacy, I don't want people to have a bunch of fields of data on me. Or activity privacy, I don't want people to know what I'm doing right now. All right, so uh, privacy is something where we have less of it today. And a lot of people are asking, you know, are we headed towards you know, a world where every single thing we do can be monitored by somebody. And is that a world we want to live in? Is that a problem? Should we have government controls? I mean, how should we handle that? So so the lack of privacy or privacy or the lack of privacy can be looked at in positive or negative ways. As as the book The Circle or the movie The Circle showed, right, which is the less privacy that we give you, the more we can keep you safe. Right. So which side of that are you on? Do you like the side of being safe? Okay, great. Then give up all your privacy and we can be safe. Okay? But 
That's just an example of technology is changing the rules on privacy right now because we have less and less of it all the time. And it's, you know, it makes us safer, but it also gives us huge convenience. So the more people know about me, the more convenience they can provide for me. But they know a lot about me. And am I okay with that? And then that'd be an example. Another example could be relationships. You know, is technology helping us to have better, higher quality relationships? And what I say in the book is a lot of people are trading quantity for quality. So you have more relationships than we've ever had, but less that are really deep relationships. And so is it good that we have more and more relationships that technology can enhance that? Or is it bad that the depth of the relationships is not quite as deep these days? I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. There's a lot of philosophical questions like that when it comes to technology. What's the best way, in your opinion, to design or craft technology in society so it is more net positive versus net negative. Certain things like privacy feel like a slippery slope. They get continuously worse and then there's a terrorist act and then they get a step level worse, but it never changes direction because governments don't often give up the the rights and power they once had. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I think the answer is we have to get a lot better at being able to extrapolate out into the future what the potential dangers of things are. We haven't been very good at that. You know, in other words, we invent nuclear fusion, you know, but we and we make bombs out of it and power plants, but we really don't think about the dangers and the impact on the world. Or we invent texting and mobile devices and we don't think about distracted driving. And so now thousands and thousands of people die because of distracted driving and we still have not solved it. I feel a little bit better about AI because there's been a lot of people talking about what can be negative about AI. You know, so you have people talking now about, well, gee, we need a digital Geneva Convention, which would be a heck of a good idea. You know, so I, I think the answer to your question is we have to get better at being proactive at understanding how a technology might change things. Like take CRISPR, right? I mean, CRISPR, the gene editing tool. And it, it isn't that hard to sit down and think about what are the potential negative consequences of CRISPR and then to say, hey, let's really make sure we're protecting ourselves against that. Well, in the US, the FDA might try to protect us, but in China, they don't have an FDA. 
So in China, they'll do crazy things with CRISPR. And you know, what might be the dangers of that? You know, I just, we just have to get, we have to do a much better job of understanding the potential impacts of these things we invent. How do you think about the tragedy of the commons? So like with China, there, and you can use anyone as an example, people are going to experiment with CRISPR. If your kid has cancer, if your kid has some incurable disease, we're going to start doing that. If you need to be slightly more intelligent than someone else to get the raise, you're going to start doing that. If you think someone else is doing that and you are not, and you're going to fall behind, eventually you have that race that feels almost inevitable because everyone else is taking Ritalin in, in college. It's like 24% of kids in college that are on Ritalin or Adderall and they're doing mm-hmm. it for performance benefits. How do we prevent that from happening with CRISPR? Can we prevent that? Well, I mean, the only way is if you have a method for having, you know, all countries, you know, people agree to the healthy use of the technologies. And that's tough to do because even if everybody agrees, you have terrorists, you know, who won't agree to any rule, you know. So the only other thing would be to restrict the use of it, you know, which is also then you don't get the cures for cancer. So it's a tough Tough question. I mean, it's a bit utopian, but you know, to me, the answer is just like we got together and developed a Geneva Convention on war and said, you know, here's our agreement of what we will and won't do as far as things being humane. It's almost like you got to have the same capability to put together all the countries to say, here's how we'll use the new technology and here's how we won't. And, and I think looking at a negative and one's looking at a positive. I think right. that changes the dynamic a little. Yeah, I agree. So you can see why you wouldn't want people to, to gas each other and war because it's bad for both sides but it's mm-hmm. much harder it's much harder to argue we shouldn't make ourselves better because someone else can't or they decided not to enhance themselves but why would that matter to me well first of all the gas example it wasn't that it could kill a lot of people it said it was indiscriminate that's the issue with it right i mean the weapons that kill a lot of people wasn't what was banned it was weapons that were indiscriminate and so you know you do have an analogy to say i'll, I'll give you one for example the Russians created a virus that had a destructive payload. They unloaded it on Chechnya, right? Just as cyber warfare. The problem was it was a virus. So it got out of Chechnya and it started rifling around the world and started taking down companies all over the world. This is a true story, right? So that was an indiscriminate digital weapon, an indiscriminate technology. You know, to me, that's the kind of stuff you have to look at and say, hey, you know what? If you're going to have a cyber warfare team, you know, good, you know that's fine. Uh, but one type of weapon we're not going to use is an indiscriminate virus with a destructive payload that when you deliver that to your enemy, it's naturally going to get out all over the world. Right? So it, it is a bit different. I mean, the dynamics in some ways are a bit than the Geneva Convention, but I think the principles apply pretty well. I think so as well. Who would you want to see there? Well, I mean, ideally, you want representatives from almost every country because you'd like every country to abide by it. But we also need smart people, too. We need people that can handle the technology. Let's face it. We all saw the Zuckerberg trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Any any thoughts on a coalition of some kind in terms of what the best way to handle that would be? It's a good question. You know, uh, you know, maybe what needs to happen is just like we've created coalitions that are cross borders to run the internet and to build the standards and kind of police and govern the internet itself. You know, maybe you need we need to just create the same type of commissions, you know, that help with these issues. Because we've done a pretty good job of having uh, groups that were not run by any one country, you know, that uh, oversee the internet as a tool. And so maybe we need the same type of groups that are also, you know, overseeing different types of technology and what the boundaries of those should be. So I want to shift gears a little bit. What's the last thing that you saw, read about, watched that blew your mind? 
Probably the article that came out a month ago or three weeks ago about the scientists that connected three people's brains to solve one problem. Interesting. Tell me, tell me, tell me a little bit more. Uh, I don't know that much about it, but I mean, he electronically with wires, I mean, he connected three brains so that when presented with a problem, all three brains worked in concert to solve the problem. And I've always thought about the hive mind, you know, or, or on Star Trek, you know, Star Trek, you had the, uh, um, oh, what were they called? The the group, Borg. That, the Borg, right? Yeah, the Borg. So I've always thought about that concept and thought about the internet is a crude version of that, where it allows us to connect billions of people, but, you know, you still have to type things in. And so, you know, I've often thought about the universal mind or the hive mind. So when I read that article, I said, well, you know, it's just another step closer uh, to how do you harness brains so that they're part of a collective as opposed to all independent. Just interesting to me. What does the evolution of the internet look like? Is it something similar to today? Is it blockchain? Is it more directly plugged in? How do you think about that? Mm, I, I guess I see the progression of the internet that uh, we weave it more and more into our bodies. I mean, we go from mobile to wearables to implantables and you know that we integrate our bodies uh, a bit more and more or our minds and our bodies more and more tightly with the internet. Uh, and that it's really, I mean, it's a transport protocol. Right? I mean, it's a it's a connection vehicle. You know, that's all it is. So it gets faster, it gets better. What's most interesting about it to me is how we connect to it. So instead of connecting to it through things you type on, you know, now we have things you talk into and type on. And you know, eventually it's brain-computer interfaces. And so that to me, as it grows up, it just gets better, faster, more you know, all over the world. And and then we integrate it into our bodies in, in certain ways. Any bold predictions with a timeline? Well, I always say that I think the digital transformation historically, in other words, you look back 500 years from now or 200 years from now, the digital transformation will be thought of as 2000 to 2050. And so you know, I, I suspect that the, the volume of uh, innovations will you know, be a bell curve that maybe peaks out you know, around 2050 and starts to come back. But I also think the integration of humans and technology just you know, flourishes up to 2050. You know, that that's where we really will be able to integrate humans and technology at a fairly high level. And I, and I don't mean like taking people's brains out and you know, connecting them to computers. I, I just mean that we'll have brain-computer interfaces. We'll have retinal projection. I mean, you know, we will have integrated with technology at fairly high levels. I mean, we won't make many decisions without an AI or a decision support system helping us to make the decision. Um, so to me, it's 2000 to 2050 is the digital transformation. And what comes next? Maybe nanotech and biotech really jump in and start you know, doing a lot of interesting things at that point. So, I mean, I've often thought about infotech versus nanotech and biotech. And, you know, we had mainframes and things like that for decades before we built the internet. And I think it'll probably be the same with nanotech and biotech. You know, we'll have them for 30, 40 years, but will eventually build powerful enough tools to really harness those two. And then, you know, then you're integrating biotech, nanotech, and infotech. And so that may be what we see after 2050. So if the IT era was decades, do you, do you not think that techno technology is accelerating, that the rate of change is increasing, that it would be a, a decreased time? I think you got to be a little careful about making really broad statements about things like that. What I would say is that when we, when we invent something, there's a bell curve of innovation that happens based on that thing, whether it's 
railroad or automobiles or mainframes or the internet. So I think we're in a bell curve where we're on the uphill um, of growing innovation. I think eventually that peaks out, okay? And the, and the amount of new innovation slows down. Doesn't come all the way down probably, but it comes down. But that's just infotech, right? So if nanotech or biotech or something like that becomes the next thing that blossoms, you know, then I think you see another bell curve with those things. Are you familiar with the Kondratiev waves? That concept? I'm not, but it sounds interesting to learn about. Yeah, go look up Kondratiev waves. You know, I mean, it's he was a Russian professor. You know, I like his idea that there are we, we invent certain things, and then there's a wave of innovation that comes after it for a while, and then you invent another thing. And one of the things is, yes, the waves are probably speeding up. Some of that probably has to do with uh, the amount of people in the world and the amount of smart scientists in the world, you know, that's helping it to speed up. But, I mean, I think, yeah, connectivity, absolutely, you know. So I think, yes, it's not so much I say, oh, the pace of innovation is speeding up. I mean, the pace of innovation is speeding up with the internet. It's not with everything. And there'll be more waves where the pace will speed up and slow down. And yes, the waves may be narrower. So I, I just think I know, sometimes people use generalizations that I think, okay, it's too easy for me to just agree with that without really saying, hey, it's a little more complicated than that. I like it. I was going to ask you for something you're contrarian about. You can use that or if you have something else. Oh, I, I think... I think that's one of the things I'm contrarian about. I mean, people look at me as a futurist and, and then they make big statements about the future. And I often say, like, there's nothing historically to support what you just said. OK, or it doesn't make sense. So, like, for instance, there's a dystopian world versus a utopian world. So people will say, oh, the world is going, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. We're all going to die. You know, look at the suicide rates. I mean, look at this. Look at that. And, you know, I'll look at it and say, well, we have improved the quality of life. We've improved, you know, so many different aspects of our world for thousands of years. And so, sure, there are bad things happening right now. Um, there always have been. So what, what proof do you have that tomorrow is going to be worse than today? So I'm a utopian believer. So you know, all these dystopian mu- movies about how machines take over and kill us all and the world's the worst place. I just don't agree with those movies. You know, it's all. I don't think I don't think you're utopian. I think you're optimistic. I think utopia is something that never really happens. It's that thing that constantly gets pushed out. Same with dystopia. Yeah. Well, I would agree with you. I would accept that, that I'm optimistic and not so much utopian, but but yes, I, I tend to do that. I, I also, if you want to know another thing that I just go against the grain, I hate when people make fun of Gen Z or millennials. I've hated it forever. And when people, when I'm speaking and people ask me things like, oh, how about those millennials? I, I get so tired of people running down the young generation when every generation has done that. Like every generation says the next generation is going to ruin the world. It, it's getting old. When I think the truth is every generation is better than the generation before. And that's what the facts would show you. And so I get, I just get annoyed when people run down millennials and Gen, you know, Gen Z. And I'm not one. I'm old, right? It's just that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just like a meme that everybody in one generation <laughs> runs down the next generation instead of really thinking about, you know, what's the facts to support all that. And not only that, it's often based around work ethic or not wanting to work as hard, which is kind of ironic because if we look, at least today, we look forward and we look backward. Do you really want to spend 60 hours in a week in a factory doing a shit job that's really meaningless? 
do you mm-hmm. want to figure out how to spend five hours a week accomplishing the exact same and pr- mm-hmm. maybe producing 10 times the salary? Um, laziness is the driver of entrepreneurship. So I think it'll be interesting to see a generation that's connected. And well, we can say a little bit lazy, but we can also say motivated by things other than money to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Or, or looking at it and saying, hey, you know, the young generations watch their parents be workaholics and ruin their families. And so they've learned not to do that and they want to have some work-life balance. And so we call them lazy instead of just saying hmm, they're well-rounded. They're trying to have work-life balance. So. Yeah, you should never take life advice from someone who's not further along in the life that you want to be because otherwise yeah. they're giving you life advice to be themselves. Right. So what what inspires you? What gets you learning, focused? Are you, are you a sci-fi guy? Do you, do you read books, films? What is it for you that helps you think deeper and further outside the box? I like sci-fi. Uh, I mean, cyberpunk to be specific. Uh, so uh, yeah, I like it. I, it's other people's worldviews and I like to see other people's worldviews and see how well they fit with my own. So I like that. Uh, but probably what inspires me most is just being creative and thinking thoughts that other people aren't thinking and trying to find the truth. You know, I I think if you know, if I get been gifted by God with anything, it's kind of having a gift of having a clean eye. So I just don't I don't accept what everybody says as the truth until I figured out myself. And I'm inspired at times by seeing something, for, you know, the truth of something instead of what society says or writers say or what everybody tries to convince me is the truth when there really isn't evidence you know for that so I'm inspired by that so sometimes if I have to create a word to describe something that's not described and then it describes the thing way better I love that you know I feel like I help the world move along better you know because I've been able to uh, identify something that that the world didn't understand or didn't wasn't able to talk about as well before how do we promote that in kids and in society because it's something that right now humanity sucks at well I, you know First of all, we've spent generations teaching kids with a regurgitation model. You know, so memorize all these facts, regurgitate these facts, and so that's hopefully that's breaking down more and more now uh, because we need to. I'll give you an example. Instead of teaching kids about the Civil War and saying, well, what were the dates of the major battles and how many people died in each battle and who were the generals and right, making them memorize all that, it's saying to kids, uh, what was the reason for the Civil War? What was the reason? How did we get there? And then what made Abraham Lincoln? decide to really give his life, uh, you know, to, to stop slavery. And, you know, I, if you want to teach about the Civil War, you know, teaching about it as what were the problems that were trying to be solved? What were the dynamics that drove it? I'm much more interested in doing that with kids than saying, hey, let's memorize who the generals were. So I, I just think education has to move into more, you know, creative problem solving and more understanding the dynamics of things so that we can create kids that are enlightened as opposed to intelligent. And I think enlightened is also intelligent. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We're definitely at a turning point where we've had a factory to put out factory workers and we're getting rid of factories. What do mm-hmm. we do? And how do we do that effectively without everyone who went through that system being screwed. That's another Mm -hmm. thing. How do we transition people as we get towards more and more of a world that is rapidly changing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. It's not to just give them money. You know, I mean, we're going to have to help re-educate and re-skill people and, you know, give them hope. And I mean, there's there's certainly ways to do it better than we're probably doing it. How would you do it? Magic wand again? Mm, You know, I think Singapore you know, I like Singapore has a model that if you're off work for three months, you can apply to be educated and they will educate you in a skill that's more valuable. And, you know, then once you're educated, you know, if you still can't find a job in that skill, you know, maybe you can get some unemployment. But I like that they just don't pay people a bunch of unemployment. 
different. I mean, with the machine intelligence coming, if it's going to take away a lot of jobs, you know, there's going to be other jobs created, but you're going to have to reskill a lot of people. So, you know, I, I'd love to move to a model where instead of just paying people unemployment, you're using a lot of that money to reskill people. Is AI net positive or net negative for jobs? It's net negative, but not as much as people think. I mean, I've seen a lot of research on it. So, you know, what I've seen is if you look at a company and you put AI into a company and it wipes out 18% of the jobs, that basically 17% are created uh, to be able to, to program, support, monitor, audit the AIs or robotics. And so usually you have a net loss of about 1%. It's hilarious. It, uh, it falls back into Kevin Kelly. It's not entirely relevant, but Kevin Kelly says humanity is roughly 51% good and 49% bad on the, on the average. So every year we get about 2% better. It's interesting yeah, how those small little changes are, are so transformational for society. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that math. I mean, but again, I'm an optimist. So I don't believe it all gets fixed next year, but I believe we're on a path that's you know, been improving us for a long time. You're an optimist. I try to be somewhere between the two. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a cynical realist, but I, I can put on my optimism hat as well. What, uh, what would you want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action? What would you be your stamp on this interview that you think people should take away? Boy, I guess you know, for me, I think it's important for people to try to become as enlightened as possible. Uh, you know, I think we're all unique and I, I, don't, I certainly don't want everybody to be alike. But what I would like is for more and more people to be enlightened. And uh, these are all just words I know. And what enlightened means to me might be different than what enlightened means to you. But, you know, for, for me, having more of a sense of why are we here? You know, how can we help the world? How can we help other people really, uh, you know, just you know, being more enlightened, uh, you know, so that we have a better ability to not be depressed or to uh, not understand good and evil or healthy and unhealthy. You know, that's probably one of my biggest dreams, you know, for my great great grandchildren on down is, and I just hope that it's a more enlightened generation uh, than mine. What do you do to try to accomplish that? How do you, how do you improve yourself? Are you a meditator? Are you spiritual? What do you do? Mm -hmm. mm, sure. All the above. I mean, I'm a, I'm a hardcore technology guy, but I mean, I do yoga, I uh, meditate. Um, I, uh, I go to church. I'm a strong Christian. I, I read, I seek to understand. I try to be a good model for others. Uh, you know, I do all of those things. I, I never stop. Of... I, I never stop and I never will stop trying to find the truth with a capital T, right? And so, I mean, I, I think that there is always a truth with a capital T. There is the truth of things. And I never stop trying to find that truth, whether it's about me, whether it's about the world. You know, I, just, I seek to try to understand as much of the truth as I can. I think that's important because when you stop learning, you start dying. Scott, mm -hmm. this, has been a, this has been fun. I hope that people get something out of this because I think you've had a lot to give people. Where's the best place for them to find you and learn more? Um, probably our website, which is tricoretechnologies.com. So, uh, you know, that's where all the information is on me as far as a speaker, but uh, that's a good place. Or the just get the book, uh, Did God Create the Internet? I mean, that would tell you a lot about me and how I think. And we've got links and all that in the show notes, guys. Disruptors.fm. Check out the podcast. Say hey to Scott. And if you liked it, leave us a review on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. It makes us feel better and helps us get awesome guests like Scott on. Disruptors.fm slash iTunes. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. This has been fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Of course. I enjoyed it. Sweet. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc.
startupdeals.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys again next week.